You are listening to the Coggin Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. In the midst of loneliness and dissatisfaction, Coggin wants to help you learn God's truth in a supportive community that pursues a full life in Jesus. If you want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.cogginchurch.org. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, I pray you bring it with you every week. Let's open together to Judges. Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. Part 1 of the, the story of Gideon. I'm just so thankful for worship songs that Matt selects that relate to the text. I have the, the inside privilege of knowing what we're going to be preaching. And those songs today were just like massaging the truths that are, we're going to find in God's Word. Like Christ is enough, for example, through any trial or circumstance. It's easy to sing that. It's a little bit harder to live that out when you're, when you're going through it. When you have faithlessness instead of faithfulness and the trials and tribulations are waiting for you. But we're going to give you an opportunity to, to apply that particular song and today's message. When I was looking at Judges chapter 6 and start thinking about the story of Gideon and Gideon connected to Midian and the Amorites and all, all that the story has to offer, I thought of a movie. Uh, you ever seen that movie A Bug's Life? Uh, to kind of remind you to jog your memory, this is A Bug's Life made by Disney and Pixar. That's Flick. He's kind of like the main character who represented the ants. Not a complicated storyline. Right? A bunch of ants in a hill that think that's their whole world right there and they spend time gathering grain and kind of like we grow crops so they can do what? Eat it the whole year long and everything's going good. And they even have grasshoppers who are kind of like the bad guys and represented by one bad guy, a big grasshopper. Do anybody remember his name in the movie? Flicks the ant. Who's the grasshopper? Way to go, Hopper. I like to say it with that accent. I don't know why. Hopper is the bad guy and the grasshopper is saying, listen, we want half of all the grain that you collect. Well, harvest time's a great time for the ants. Like, it's fine. Take the grain, half of it. We got plenty and they're living in joy and prosperity. But then Flick makes a mistake and all of a sudden the grasshoppers think, you know what? We're going to take twice as much. Suddenly, the time of harvest goes from joy to terrible, <laughs> happy to bad real quick. Now they're in danger of starving. What was good is now kind of turned against them, and they live in ultimate fear of the grasshoppers because they're bigger and stronger. That is until the end of the movie when the ants finally realize their true strength, which for them was in their numbers and their intelligence. When you think about that connected to Judges 6, it's that sound weird. It's kind of what's going on here, right? The nation of Israel is like the ants, that they're a small nation, that the bad guys aren't the grasshoppers, but they kind of act like grasshoppers or locusts. They're the Midianites, and, and the Midianites will come in every year, every harvest season, and they would just obliterate the crops and even take and destroy their livestock. And Israel's afraid of the Midianites and the armies of the Amorites. Why? Because they're bigger and stronger. And Israel lives in a constant state of fear of those who are destroying their lifestyle. So much so that they run to the hills so they can't be seen living. Because if they were to see some crops growing, the Midianites would come and destroy them. If they see some animals grazing, the Midianites would come and destroy them. And Israel lives in the state of fear. Why? Because of their own disobedience. We have to plug that into the story. They're worshiping other gods and God is bringing Midian to discipline them. But they live in a state of fear until when? They realize their true strength. No, it wasn't in numbers. They never had the numbers. They never will have the numbers. We never will as Christianity have the numbers. And no, not because of their intelligence. They're, 
they're pretty spiritually ignorant, to be honest, but because they realize their strength is in the Lord their God. And that is the hero of the story. God is. He consistently shows his faithfulness and strength to Israel in the midst of their faithlessness, right? Their, their weakness. And, and God's on display throughout this text. But before we get to that specifically, honestly, not just the nation of Israel, but we get it illustrated through an individual called Gideon, which is going to help us apply it. Before we even get to that, I, I want to kind of help you understand that where Israel is in Judges chapter 6, they didn't have to be there. If they would have just obeyed the Lord and repented of their sin, instead of just regretting, this is going to be key for the first part of this message, instead of just regretting living in the pain of the consequences of their sin, they would have been a whole different place. And so let's take that as our first point. Learn the message that Judges wants to teach us right off the bat, that when we're in sin, which we will be, and you will be, maybe later this week, ask God to help you desire repentance and not just regret. The story starts as it always does in the book of Judges with the sin cycle starting all over again. If you haven't been here for that, it's pretty simple, just four phases of the cycle. It starts with disobedience and because Israel disobeys, God disciplines them. And then once God disciplines them, they feel pain. It's there. They cry out to him in some form or fashion. That's illustrating dependence on him. And once they depend on him, he delivers them but because they don't have repentance and it's just regret, they go right back to disobedience again. And we're right in the middle of the sin cycle here. When they disobey, they, they do evil in the sight of the Lord is what it tells us. And it says because they disobeyed, God brings them very low. Look at verse 6. They're brought very low because of Midian. I love the word or the idea of being brought low in the Hebrew language. Listen, it, it means to be made thin and poor. That has both physical and spiritual application for them and spiritual application for sure for us. Because they didn't have crops to eat, because they didn't have livestock to nourish their homes, they were literally malnourished and thin. They were thinning out. And they were impoverished. They were poor. This is the result of their sin. It's the same for us. If we maintain our sinfulness and, and reject repentance, which God is trying to bring us to at all phases of our life, we will become spiritually thin, which means we'll be immature. And every wave of hardship, every wind of tribulation will hurt us and blow us over and make us feel like we're drowning. We will be spiritually poor. But sometimes that's where God needs you to be so that the pain is so bad and you're so uncomfortable that you see the need to change. And it seems like Israel's doing that. If you look at them, they, they start feeling the pain. They, it tells us here in, after seven years of this oppression, they cry out to the Lord in what seems like dependence. But right when you think the sin cycle's following its normal path, right when you think that God's about to raise up a deliverer and rescue them from the oppression of Midian, instead of first sending a deliverer, he sends a prophet. Instead of a warrior, he sends a sermon. Instead of a battle, he sends them a message. And look at what the message is from this prophet that comes out of nowhere. Almost, you kind of want to skip over and get to Gideon. Don't you do that? Verse 8, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, it was I who brought you up from Egypt. Why does he remind them of that? Because they forgot. Or they stopped remembering. 
and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the God of the Amorites in whose land you live. But as he says these words, they are literally shaking and hiding in fear. Why? The ending part of verse 10. You have not obeyed me. The reason that God sends them a sermon instead of a deliverer at this point is because he wants to try to help them out of the sin cycle and get to the root of the problem. God's response in sending a prophet helps us today and gives us some insight in what it means for Israel to cry out to the Lord. God responds to their plea by reminding them that despite the fact that he's already saved them through Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, and Deborah, that they don't get it. How? Because they are not obeying him. Why? Because they're not truly returning away or repenting of the sin that they're in. It should be surprising that God sends a prophet instead of a deliverer because he hasn't done that yet. It would be like you being in a restaurant later this afternoon eating lunch. Let's say you go to Prima Pasta and you're hanging out. That's pretty good, isn't it? Enjoying some delicious pasta. And all of a sudden, someone at the table next to you, they grab their chest and they complain that their, their left arm is hurting. They have a hard time catching their breath and they fall over and they pass out right there in the restaurant. You're thinking they're having a... I know you're not a doctor, right, or a heartologist, whatever, the cardiologist, whatever, right? <laughs> but it's not that hard to understand that they might be having a heart attack. It would be like if you saw that and, and you say, is there a doctor in the house? And some guy with his Ph.D. in exercise physiology stands up and says, I'm a doctor. And he comes over there and he starts giving the whole restaurant a lecture on the dangers of obesity in America. And the dangers of how heart disease and cardiovascular disease happens in the first place. It comes because you have a bad diet. It becomes you, can, you don't exercise enough. It comes because you don't have enough stress. You're like, that's weird. Yeah, it's weird, but it's only weird because of the timing. You would think he'd be down there like, okay, one and two. He's not that kind of doctor. That's what God's doing here. That They want somebody just to come and save them and rescue them from uh, the oppressor. God brings a prophet to say, no, it's deeper. You, you continue to need a deliverer because you continue to follow in the sin, which I continue to love you enough to discipline you. You need to understand the root of the problem. It only seems weird in that scenario that a PhD exercise physiologist would be given that lecture because of timing. It's actually a pretty good idea if we're struggling with cardiovascular disease in our nation, if somebody were to educate us on how that happens. Rather than just saving us every time we have a heart attack, that's why people try to go through great detail into telling you it's listen it's stress related it, it's all the fatty foods that we're eating it's the bad diets that we have it's the lack of exercise and the increased stress that's actually a good thing why because it gets to the no pun intended the heart of the problem so that we can avoid the heart attacks that's what god's doing for israel the heart of the problem is they are just regretting the consequences of the sin they have yet to repent of the sin that they're in. Which allows me to go into a little bit of a discussion on the difference between regret and repentance. Regret, if you want to write this down, it was helpful for me, is sorrow about sin, but it's not godly sorrow. It's only sorrow concerning the consequences of sin, not because of the sin itself. That's regret. 
whereas repentance is sorrow over how the sin grieves God. Sorrow over how sin damages your relationship with the holy God of the universe. Tim Keller says the focus of regret is all horizontal. I mean, regret's just about you. Why is this happening to me? I feel the pain that the sin is causing me or the consequences of that sin and what it's causing me and my family and therefore that's why I want it to change. Whereas the focus of repentance is vertical. God, I, I, I'm burdened over how you see this sin. How it's detracting from your glory. How it's not honoring the sacrifice of Christ that I say that I believe. How it's damaging my relationship with you. If you would repent instead of regret, God would uproot the sin and remove it from your life. But if you just regret, let me tell you the danger of regret. Regret is regretful. You're like, yeah? What does that mean? It means it's repetitive. If you just regret and you don't repent, then you'll only want to change because of the consequences of sin. And when the consequences of sin start to lessen, you're going to go right back to the sin again, which means God's going to discipline you again, and you're going to be right back at regret. And so if you're here today, and you're continuing in that cycle of, oh, regretting the consequences, and then the sin and the regret and the sin and the regret, ask yourself this question, why am I feeling sorrowful over my sin? If it's only, the answer, if it's only because of the consequences, then that's regret and not repentance. Ask God to help you repent of your sin and have a desire to turn away from it because of his glory and for his sake. Ask God to break you on how that sin dishonors him. The reason God gave a sermon instead of a deliverer is because the goal of God's conviction is not temporary regret. The goal of God's conviction is lasting repentance. That's why we have the book of Judges with the same story, different character, over and over again. May God, oh please, may God teach you a different lesson. But that's not their story, so we must move on. As we change from the lack of repentance, and we look at verses 11 through 24, enter comes our judge. What you see in the life of Gideon is God's faithfulness despite his faithlessness. So I want to encourage you today, let God's faithfulness empower your weakness. Finally, Gideon did that, but look how long it took as we start unfolding the story of Gideon, we want to run to the fleeces. I'm going to mention the fleeces about this long today because that's not the point of the story. It only confuses people. I want you to know, maybe more importantly, where is Gideon when God finds him in this story? He's threshing in a wine press. Now, now if you're an Old Testament biblical scholar, that should sound pretty weird. Because a wine press was not for threshing, it was for making wine. And you would put grapes in this wine press, which is basically just a giant cutout in the ground that went down below the ground, made out of rock or stone, and what would you do? Right, like we've seen on I Love Lucy. You'd walk around and you'd stomp the grapes and it'd produce the juices and they would become, yes, Baptist, wine. Right, and they would drink it. There's another sermon. We shouldn't get drunk on it. We can say that out loud. But moving on, that's a wine press. A threshing floor, totally different. It's on a high place, on a mountaintop or a hillside. Why? So that wind could blow. So that when you're smashing or threshing the wheat against the ground, the wind would come and the chafe would come up because it's lighter than the wheat. The wheat would stay down. The chafe would come up and the wind, now there's some spiritual stuff here. You need to hold on to this. The wind would remove the chafe. Maybe there needs to be some spiritual threshing in your life today. Side point. 
You don't thresh in a low place. You thresh on a high place. Why was Gideon threshing in a wine press? Because he was scared. And he was scared because he'd been living in sin so long, he started to forget the power of God in his life. And God comes to him in this wine press. I think the wine press is just a, 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 a physical illustration of the spiritual reality that the nation of Israel was allowing themselves to be in the wine press of sin, blind to the mercy and the love of God when they had access to the threshing floor where God's mercy and grace was available. Some of you are living in the wine press of sin, hiding from God, afraid of the enemies when you could be standing free, open, letting God remove the chafe and his love and his mercy. But there, that's where he is. Verse 12, he tells him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. That's pretty good stuff right there. That's something you can hang your hat on. Listen, the Lord's with you. You're a warrior. But instead of being empowered by that because he's so entangled and depressed and negative about the sin that he's been in, he's in the wine press when he hears that and he starts looking around. I'm the only guy in here. There's There's no valiant warrior in here. And we know that he doubts how God is speaking over him and what God is saying to him because of his response. Look at verse 13. Gideon said to him, oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Underline the word why. And where are all of his miracles in which our fathers told us about saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now, listen to the accusation. He's so blind in his sin, he didn't know who God is. Now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. God is trying to give Gideon a faithful promise, and Gideon is responding with a faithless question, and he continues to do it because why? He's like you and me. Praise God, God is God because he's so patient and long-suffering with Gideon. Instead of Gideon saying, wow, God is with me and I'm a warrior, he questions God's faithfulness and asks accusatory why questions. Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to us? What Gideon failed to realize is that Israel was being disciplined by the Lord because of his and their unfaithfulness, not because of God's somehow hatefulness or his neglect. Listen, I'm hard on Gideon sometimes when I'm reading this story. Even this week I was. Until I realized how much like Gideon I am. See, it's easy to view our tough circumstances today as evidence that God has abandoned us instead of viewing our tough circumstances as God trying to teach us or grow us. But that's what tough circumstances are meant to do every time. It's hard when you're being punched in the face to remember Romans 8.28 that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. See, when life is hard, we're quick to ask God, not only accuse God, but we're quick to ask God to just get us out of the mess that we're in, like Gideon's expecting here. Instead of asking God to give us the strength to recognize his presence, then to give us the strength to bring him glory in it. So remember today, as God is trying to remind Gideon, the great benefit of being a follower of Yahweh is not that he rescues you from all the pain that you're in. The great benefit of being a follower of Yahweh through a relationship with Jesus Christ is that he's with you. This is the story of the gospel. 
This is the story of Scripture. Anything else is selling your relationship with God short. If somebody sold you the bill of goods that says as soon as you become a believer, all of a sudden you have entrance into a cruise ship where life is easy and it's all rainbows and sunshine and no hardship, that's not Christianity. That's a false dream. That's not even good for you. When you come to God, the promise is that I will be with you. And I will show you myself in every situation. Look at Scripture. This is what it says. Psalm 23. We love that passage of Scripture. The Lord is my shepherd, David says. I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, so that when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. The psalm doesn't say, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I praise you because you deliver me from the valley. That's what we want. That's an American interpretation. That's not what the Bible says. Now, does God sometimes deliver you from the situation that you're in? Yeah, and praise him for that as well. But when he doesn't, praise him anyway. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm sure they wanted to be out of the fiery furnace. It's getting hot in here. But that wasn't the point. They said, even if you don't, even if God doesn't show up, he's still God, and we're going to praise him anyway. This is the scripture. Gideon, like I often do, he missed it. But God is patient. He's the hero of this story. Instead of berating Gideon, he simply answers his why question with the who answer. This is something you need to take away today. Look at verse 14. The Lord looked at him and said, go in this your strength, whose strength? God's strength in him. And deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? Listen, dude. That's, what, that's my interpretation. <laughs> uh, I got you. Have you forgotten? I'm the God of the universe. I can do anything. And if I'm sending you to battle, you're going to win. Because I'm God. So just go and trust me. Mighty warrior is what he was, but he couldn't believe it yet. So he responds to God's faithful promise with another faithless question. I'm weak. My family's a bunch of poor. Nobody's from nowhere. How can I do this? At this point, I'm like, okay, I'm done with you, Gideon. I go find somebody else. But God doesn't do that. He says in verse 16, again, more patience. Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. If Gideon has anything right, he doesn't have a lot right here. In fact, he's kind of the downturn of the great judges, and it kind of implodes at Samson. If he had anything right here, he had this right. On my own, I can't do it. 100% right. But Gideon forgot something that's pretty important, that he wasn't going on his own. He was going with God, and God was going with him. And with God, what does the Bible tell us? All things are possible. I pray that somebody in here believes that. It's the same for us today, same for me today. I'm weak. I'm constantly filled with fear and anxiety. I know that I'm unworthy to stand before God, much less battle for him like some kind of warrior. Yet despite me, what does he do? He chooses me. That's crazy. Despite you, he uses you. If you would just believe what he says about you, all the mighty things he could accomplish through you. He says, I still don't believe. Prove it to me. God says, okay. He was dead set on using Gideon. And so God sends an angel. The angel says, prepare a mill. And here's another miracle. He touches the entire mill with the staff and poof, it's gone. But instead of believing God, and I was like, uh-oh, this angel's powerful. Now I'm going to die. Look at verse 22. God again and, and really past 22, God again says, 
you're not going to die. Peace be to you. Don't be scared. I'm here. I'm not going to kill you. And I don't know what it did or how the compassion finally got to him, but he gets it. And finally, the truth of God washes over Gideon and he says, okay, I'm going to build an altar to the Lord. And notice what he calls that place. He calls it the Lord is peace. Oh, so many times I'm like Gideon. I can't see the forest of God's blessing and his plan for the trees of my own circumstances right in front of me. Instead of looking out into the awesome things that are waiting for me, I ask, why are these trees destroying me? I would encourage you, stop asking the why questions. I have no inclination of a promise that you'll ever have an answer to. Why is this happening to us or why is this happening to me? So rarely have I heard about anybody ever getting an answer to that until after the circumstance is over. Ask a different question. Gideon should have been asking, who's going to be with me in this battle? God would be like, I got you. Who's going to guide me in battle? God's like, I got you. Who's going to bring me through the battle and who's going to be waiting for me on the other side of the battle? The answer to the who question has a God answer every time. That's the question we should be asking. If you're suffering today and it's because of sin, stop regretting the consequences of the sin and repent. Change your mind about it. Turn away from it. If the circumstance that you're in that is troublesome or troubling or a trial or a tribulation and you can't connect it to sin, ask God to reveal himself in it, not to deliver you from it. Well, you can ask him to deliver you from it, but if he doesn't, say, okay, Lord, show me yourself in it. Teach me something from it so I can bring you glory through it. This is what God wants. He didn't get it yet from Gideon, but that's what he wants. Let's go on. Look at verses 25 through 40. He wants Gideon, who's starting to come out of his faithlessness, and started to believe in God's faithfulness. But there's one thing God wanted him to do. He goes, listen, you got to get rid of these idols. I am not sharing you. I am not sharing your heart, church family, with anybody. So the message here is to replace your idols with the presence of God. He says, what I want you to do, you know that bell altar that you built, or that you allowed to be built, or y'all built, however you want to put it? Go tear it down, and in its place, make an altar to me. You know, the Asherah pole, it was just a, a wooden pole that was erected to a pagan goddess. Yeah, I want you to tear down that pole, and I want you to use the wood from that pole and make a fire for the burnt offering that you're sacrificing to me on my altar. That's how you deal with idols in your life. You don't play with them, you burn them. You don't toy around with them because you think you know better than God. You destroy them. That's what Gideon did. But he wasn't quite there yet. He still had a lot of fear and doubt because of Midian. Notice in the text, when or what time of day did Gideon obey the Lord? In the daylight as a public proclamation of his faith? No. He did it at night. Because he still has the wine press mindset. He still has the weak man, not the warrior mindset. So he does it at night. He obeys, but kind of on his time and in his own way. And so when the people wake up the next day, who, by the way, aren't worshiping Yahweh, they're in full-blown idolatry. They're worshiping Baal, and they see the altar of Baal's torn down. They see the Asherah poles torn down. They're like, oh, no, we're in trouble. Who did this? We're going to kill him. And because it's a small town, kind of like Brownwood, they start talking. The community finds out it was Gideon. They go to his house to kill him. <laughs> I love this scene. And his dad shows up. Joash says, if Baal is God, let him contend for himself. 
Therefore, they see God as God, and they give the name to Gideon Jerubbabel, which means the one who contends against the idol of Baal. If the community is going to call you something, let them call you a contender against the idols that are trying to take over your family, your church, and your country. It would be awesome to be known as a warrior against idolatry. That's what Gideon is becoming because of God. It wasn't a lot in him to see his worth anything, but God says, I choose you anyway. The section reminds me that the first step in replacing your idols is to destroy them. I've said it before, but I'm probably going to say it again even after this sermon. What are you doing with your idols? Maybe I should start off by asking, what is the idol in your home for you and your family that's distracting you from your worship of God? It's about to get real, so buckle your seatbelts. If it's a phone or a TV and you try to destroy it, you better get ready. Because like the community of Gideon, your family's going to come after you. They're going to be looking for blood. You might want to start with some app limits, right? I mean, or some time on the TV off and on. But whatever you do, stop playing with it. Seriously, if, you're, if it's distracting you from God, remove it. I know a dad, in all seriousness, that after I don't know how many mistakes his child made in pretty deep sin on the phone, that which, by the way, he bought, he put the phone in his driveway and he backed over it two or three times until he crushed the phone and he didn't buy the child another one. And then he said, leave it in the driveway as a symbol of the sin that you were in every time you walked by it. I was like, whoa, dad. Pretty serious. I don't know. These are just options. All the teenagers are in here like, oh, no, no, no. Mom, we ain't going to that church no more. I'm done. He's teaching heresy. It's not heresy. Let's start with app limits. If you haven't tried that yet, let, let's start with some, you know, time with your children on and off the TV. Do something. But for many of you who are adults, it's probably sensuality on the Internet. How are you going to destroy that? Are you going to remove access that you have to the internet? I've done that before. Are you going to get accountability? I've done that before. Is it easy? No, but you may need it. Do it. You worship your work. I'm not asking you to quit your job. You can keep your job and destroy the idol. Just give God the place that he deserves. Replace the idol with God is what I'm saying. After you destroy it. Forgetting that looked like him believing in who God was again. Now the scene of the fleeces. He's not there yet. Now basically what he's thinking, you know, remember the fleeces, he says, lay out a fleece and then one time the wool was dry and the ground was wet. The other time the wool was wet and the ground was dry and we want to get into all of that and start laying fleeces out in the world. If you hear preaching like that, I mean, I can't say for sure I know that preacher, but you need to be leery of that kind of nonsense. That's not why the text is here. Then what Gideon is asking is, is, God, show yourself to me as greater than the idols that are consuming me. So God answered Gideon, don't you go home and ask God, listen, if you want me to tithe, I'm willing to do it. But what you got to do is next week when I show up to make the whole sermon about tithing, that's what you got to do for me. God's already spoken on that. We don't need clarity. We have the benefit, unlike Gideon, 3,500 years later, God has already spoken we know what he wants. It's that, God, if you want me to share the gospel, you need to bring an unbeliever to my house at 2.45 this afternoon because that's the window I have. Don't you do that to God. Don't manipulate him. God's already spoken on that. He wants you to share the gospel if you're a believer. 
God, if you want me to take that job in the town over, then, you know, at 2.45, the unbeliever gets here. At 3.45, the CEO of that company needs to call me direct. Stop it. Stop it. God has already definitively spoken to you in Christ. If you want a miracle, Jesus has already performed the greatest miracle that's ever happened. He rose from the dead. If you want to look for God to reveal himself to you for who he is, I want you to want that. Like Gideon wanted that. It's already been done. Look to Jesus and no further. Victory is what he says. The question is, do you believe it? Are you struggling today? I know you are. Or at least some of you are. I've been there as well. Again, if it's because of your sin, it's not regret God's looking for. It's repentance that you need. Turn away from that sin. If you're struggling in that trial or tribulation and you've already asked God to remove you from the situation, but he's kept you there for some reason, ask him to reveal himself in it. Ask him to help you believe what he says about you. And he might just show you a mighty warrior in the mirror. Male or female alike, you can all be mighty warriors for the Lord. And instead of delivering you from that circumstance and that trial or tribulation, you may learn that's exactly where I need to be. So I can show the glory of God in the situation and the gospel can be proclaimed. You don't ask God to remove you from the place that he puts you. So that you can be a warrior and fight the enemy with the gospel. Your workplace, your school, camp this week. Ask God to help you look at life different is what I'm asking you. There's, there's, a, there's a truckload of application for the individual. I don't know what God's asking you to do, but I know that he doesn't ask us to show up on any Sunday and walk away unimpacted and unchanged. So let's pray about it together. Would you bow with me? God, God this morning... The life of Gideon is, is rich. The life and the nation of Israel is rich with application, God, many times for us to avoid. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would walk this text into individual application for the benefit of the congregation that we together can show your glory. God, if we've been playing with regret in a cycle of sin, bring us to repentance. God, for some, through repentance, that leads to faith for the first time in Jesus Christ. God, for believers that are still toying with that sin, God, it may be repentance that leads to a lasting change. Maybe it comes along with a destruction of an idol. God, do that. And maybe somebody in here today just needs to believe what you say about them. Warrior, princess. Warrior out in the world. Or blood-bought, born-again child of the king. I don't know. Holy Spirit, would you just do what only you can do? Bring to faith in here. Lord, bring us to obedience in here. It's the precious name of Jesus Christ. Everybody said, amen. We hope that you have enjoyed this sermon audio from Coggin Avenue Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about us or know what it means to follow Jesus, visit us online at www.cogginchurch.org.